Catherine Schultz is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Being Wrong. She was a National Magazine Award and Pulitzer Prize winner in 2015 for the really big one, an article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. Lost and Found, the book we're going to talk about today, grew out of Losing Streak, which was originally published in The New Yorker and later anthologized in the Best American Essays. A native of Ohio, she lives with her family on the eastern shore of Maryland. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thanks so much for having me on. Mary, Mary Carr, in her book, The Art of the Memoir, writes, to bring oneself to others makes the whole planet less lonely. Uh, is this true in the case of your book? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm such an admirer of Mary Carr and, and had the chance to talk to her about that book when it came out. Um, but I will say for myself, uh, it's not exactly true only because I, I don't find the planet terribly lonely to begin with. I think this is one of these kind of fundamental ways um, you can kind of divvy up humanity in all these ways, most of them very silly. Uh, but but as a default, I suppose one feels the planet is lonely or the planet is is full of bustling, remarkable humanity. Uh, and and I, I tend to side with the latter camp a little bit which is to say I didn't write it out of a sense of loneliness or, or a kind of longing to connect, not because I reject that longing, but because I, uh, I try to live into it and with it all the time. But I hope the book um, makes those who are suffering a, a bit of a lonely spell uh, feel connected and, and feel um, in some sense that their sense of what it is to be human is is shared and deepened uh, and, and, and hopefully kind of rendered a little warmer and more joyful by reading it. It's quite a presumptuous hope, but, but that's my hope. <laughs> you also reference in your book, this obligation to quote, dispel the darkness. So I'm, I'm trying to paint you into a really dark corner here, I guess. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I think that you can not be a lonely person and, and not regard the world as, as fundamentally uh, a kind of solitary isolating place and nonetheless acknowledge the darkness in it. I, I don't see how it's possible to live uh, as, a, as a mature grown up uh, in this world and, and not see that darkness uh, and, and recognize the effect it has on all of our lives. I mean, it's around us all the time. It's in the news, even if we aren't directly experiencing it. And you know, I think that the awareness of that is, is critically important uh, to us uh, to, to remain humane. You know, when our own lives are going well, it's, it's important to remember the presence of darkness in the same way that when our own lives are not going so well, it is important to remember that um, this too shall pass and, and that there is, there is light and there is joy um, somewhere out there waiting for us, hopefully. <laughs> so, but, but yes, in terms of our kind of moral obligations, mine are not shaped by... Um, a kind of conventional religious upbringing, the way some people's are, um, but but they certainly, I think, could be summed up as an obligation to dispel the darkness. You know, whether or not it has settled over us, um, it is it is out there in the world. It is settling over other people. Uh, it's you know, it's we see it in Ukraine right now. We see it all over the world when we when we choose to look. And I do think um, we need to look and we need to register it and we need to do what we can to kind of raise up the light against us against it, which can of course take many forms, but. Um, Yes, boy, you did kind of draw me right into the kind of deep, dark depths right away, which isn't a bad place to be, as I say. Well, let's let's get out of there. Uh, one of the things that I took from my my father's place when he died was a little plaque that he and, and it was his own little note that he'd written on it and drawn a couple of little flowers. And it was a quote from W.H. Hudson. And the quote is the sense of the beautiful is God's best gift to the human soul. And to me, just based on this book of yours, you really have a, you really have a sense of the beautiful. Huh. Um, what a beautiful thought, actually. Um, I do, uh, well, I, you, you can tell that I find the word the world beautiful because I find that, uh, that, that quote that you just read me quite beautiful. And um, yes, I mean, we were just talking about darkness, but there is all this beauty uh, around us in the world, which is, 
it's it's quite astonishing that it exists at all. It's quite astonishing that we can register it and experience it as beautiful. Uh, and and I think that's some of of the point of this book. You know that we we look around and we see that beauty and we find things that amaze us with their beauty. Uh, and we mourn the things we lose because they were beautiful unto us. And uh, I do think right, what a remarkable capacity. You know that we can register this. Um, I also feel that way about awe. You know, our our sense of awe to me is a uh, a beautiful and strange part of being human that we can kind of summon a sense of our place in the cosmos and it fills us with with this just sense of, of being overwhelmed and uh, kind of overpowered and I think quite grateful all at once. I do think it really is a gift though that not everyone has. Not everyone is moved by beauty, the beauty of nature, for example, the way you are. Mm. Well, it's true that I'm specifically very, very moved by the beauty of the natural world, and I, I seek it out, and I, I have a powerful response to it. But I like to think that most people are moved by something and, and struck by the beauty of something, including things mm -hmm. to which I'm completely deaf. You know, I, um, I can, I can recognize in an intellectual sense that, uh, you know, there's beauty in in a certain painting, you know, or a certain opera or, or something of that sort. But I'm. Uh, I don't seem to have the requisite natural receptors and I haven't trained myself into having, <laughs> you know, more, more sophisticated ones. And so I, I think probably we all respond to some kind of beauty. I mean, there's a moment in this book when I sort of stop and I say a very tricky thing about writing about your own inner world, your own kind of inside sense of, of things um, is that you have no idea how much it has in common with other people's, you know, it's all kind of a kind of a gander and you hope some people will nod along, but you don't exactly know. And I guess my hope is that, that most of us um, do have something in the world that we just naturally respond to as, as beautiful and that moves us because it does strike me as a gift uh, and it, it strikes me as restorative. And I, I um, feel quite sad to imagine someone without any of that, that, that could, mm -hmm. could um remind them of what's remarkable about being alive. So I like to think most people have something they respond to, but, but again, who knows? I haven't polled all of humanity to find out. Well, some people find a mathematical formula beautiful. Mm. Sure, that's a great example. In fact, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me the consistency with which scientists and mathematicians at a very advanced level respond to certain solutions or theorems or formulations as elegant, you know, yes, uh, yes. And, and, and do perceive a beauty in them. And that's a great example of like, I just, it's all the same to me, right? I see nothing in it. I, no part of me can kind of chime in response to that. Um, but it's, but how wonderful that some people do and talk about what something that might seem like a gift from God, how strange, right? That a mind would be able to look at something mathematical and, and see in it something that felt to them authentically beautiful. It's, it's like speaking some language I can't even hear. Mm. Well, there's the beauty. And then I think there's also this sort of profound awareness that there's a pattern here. So, you know, there's more possibly here than we can, we can understand, you know? Mm. Sure, which which to me I think is mostly a great source of comfort. You know, I, I know that um, yeah. the the sense of um, vast ignorance can also be scary and alarming in various ways. But I derive great comfort from the sense of like, man, we don't know the half of it. Yes, <laughs> we don't yes. know the billionth of it. I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm interested in the parallels and differences, <laughs> uh, connections. Uh, between essay writing and memoir writing. Uh, it seems to me that uh, what we have here in your book is three essays that are very intricately and intelligently woven together using your personal experience. I think that's a nice way to describe it. Um, it was certainly conceived as a as a whole, you know, um, but I knew from the beginning that it, it was kind of a triptych, that it, it was a whole that was going to consist of these three parts. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of thing to put together because you're both concerned with the internal structure of each one and then with... Uh, with the, the kind of lattice work that connects them and, and makes them all feel like in the end, like one kind of coherent book and one overarching um, narrative line. 
in terms of the relationship between essays and memoir, boy, I mean, let's call it Mary Carr and ask her. But you're doing well, it. The, you are doing it. Well, thank you. You know, I um, I'm, I feel somewhat ill-equipped to answer that question only because um, the terrain of memoir is very new to me. Uh, I, I wrote this one, obviously. Um, I was surprised to find myself wanting to write a book this personal and, and something that could fit into that category of memoir. Uh, and, and so perhaps unsurprisingly, it, it fits into it a little bit uneasily, you know. Um, yes. Obviously, this is a book about my life. Uh, it is a book specifically about uh, two of the most uh, moving and significant events of my life, finding my partner and, and losing my father. Um, and yet, you know, as, as, as that partner noted, when she first read a whole draft of this book, she said, you know, for a memoir, there is not very much of you in here, yeah. <laughs> which in yeah. a certain sense is true. You know, it's not that I'm withholding, it's that it wasn't sort of the point of this book to give you a kind of complete account of the life of Catherine Schultz. So you get me in these moments. Uh, and I, I like to think you get a sensibility, you know, you're kind of with me on the page as mm -hmm. I move through these things. Uh, but actually, you do get much more of her and her family and of my father. Um, and, and certainly, I think you get more of these kinds of broad ideas about losing and finding, because I knew all along that I was only interested in writing about my life insofar as it provided an emotional anchor for exploring these categories that were completely fascinating to me, you know, this very weird category of loss that somehow we managed to fit everything in it from our, our you know, lost car keys and cell, cell phones to, you know, a lost faith or a lost election, or of course our lost loved ones. And conversely, this equally strange category of discovery, which somehow, you know, what belongs in there, you know, uh, the, the car keys that we find again, um, but also, you know, a, a COVID vaccine or, the fossils that turn out to be an entirely new species of dinosaur. And then of course the, the person we fall in love with. So I knew all along it was a, it was going to be a balancing act of stories about myself and, and a kind of exploration of things that um, although they are part of my life, I think are, are just kind of a shared feature of being human. And that's what made it exciting to me to write. Typically the most important things that happen in a, in a person's life would be the death of a loved one or falling in love. So you've sort of stripped the, you know, the, the memoir, the, the whole genre down to its bones. Mm -hmm. And with etymology and, and research, you've sort of dug down in each, each of these different areas. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to me, it was kind of obvious um, that those events were were interesting and merited attention on their own and as parts of these larger categories, and that frankly, not much else in my life did. You know, um, yeah. when you when you survey the landscape of contemporary memoir, quite a lot of it is either um, about pretty uh, dramatic cases of of kind of familial trauma or or dysfunction, or it's about celebrity. Uh, and um, and I'm, I'm grateful for all that. I don't say any of that dismissively. I particularly think it's really important that we live in a time when it is possible to be quite transparent about very, very difficult things that happen to people. Um, but of course, that wasn't my story. You know, I, I come from a very happy family uh, and yes. I'm not Michelle Obama. So so in many ways, this felt to me like very deliberately about ordinary life. You know, even these momentous events. I lost my father, not thank God, my child. You know, I, I, this is a death that is very much in the normal order of things. It was a death in old age. Uh, it, it was, of course, very sad, but as I say in the book, not not quite a tragedy. You know, and likewise, um, you know, we'll we'll all eventually lose people we love. I hope we all find people we love. So I, my my love story feels epic and spectacular to me, but but I hope we all have one. So, in many ways, this is a book, uh, as I said, very deliberately about. Um, quite commonplace experiences. Well, the way you put it is, what shocked me was that something so sad would be the normal, necessary way of things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that to me um, was a very striking feeling after my father died. I, um, I'm, of course, mindful of far more tragic deaths. I have lived through more tragic deaths. Uh, and, and as I said, if you do attend to the darkness in the world, they're unfortunately around us all the time. And 
So it felt very important to me to say, look, this is um, this is not an instance of a tragic death. You know, my father was 74 when he died. He yes. was surrounded by people he loved and who loved him. Uh, I, I like to think that um, he had a peaceful death and he certainly had a rich and wonderful life. Uh, and yes, what was so striking to me in the moment was like, well, this is the best case scenario, right? I mean, I wish he'd been 104, not 74, but it's pretty close to the best case scenario. And yet, you know what? Like, it still sucks. <laughs> so very difficult and and right. so in some ways that's kind of the fundamental question like how do we live with the fact that this is the way it goes you know if you love something you will lose it you just will one way or another yeah through their death through your death that's that's the name of the game and so in some ways the very fact that it wasn't a tragedy but was simply the price of being human was exactly what to me made it feel like it was worth paying attention to it's very hard to read your book without thinking of the death of a loved one that you've gone through, a love affair or a love, a great love that you've, it's impossible to read your book without relating. So I'm all wrapped up in these emotions, all of these deep emotions as a result of <laughs> reading your book. I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to come down from that or detox, not detox, but just sort of, uh, yeah, anyway, it was a, it's a very moving experience reading your book. Hmm. Well, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you say that it made you think about your own life, you know, um, and I've, as I said earlier, it's, it's hard to know when, when you're writing about your own internal experiences, how much other people will say, you know, ah, yes, this is what being alive is like for me also. And it's been really mm -hmm. moving to me, you know, the book's been out for a couple of months now, and I've been so touched to hear from readers who reach out to say thank you you know my dad died last year or 40 years ago and and this is what it was like and I was grateful to have language for it or you know conversely to have people say I'm I just fell in love and I'm you know reading this at our wedding it's just perfect or even better you know I've I've been married for 53 years and thank you for this yes. love story let me tell you about mine so yes it's it's sweet you know I I think that um there's this kind of wonderful human impulse when someone tells you a story uh to tell you to tell them your own version so I'm I'm hearing some grief stories and a whole lot of love stories and it's uh it's really quite a wonderful uh outcome of the book you love, and I love the way you use alliteration. There's also the way that you beautifully surprise the reader. There are some very lovely surprises in that book. Uh, I'm very glad you experienced them that way. And we'll be a little bit coy, I think. Yes, um, let's be coy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, obviously, this is not by and large a book that works on the basis of, of suspense. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. I did find a fair amount of I'll tell you one example, particularly, hmm. you know, with the found section, we, we go into it. And you dig into the etymology and the, the, the classical mythology and I kept thinking, okay, I want your love story now. You, <laughs> okay. you, you did a very good job of that, I thought. <laughs> well, it is true, sure. I mean, there's, there's some obvious acts of kind of withholding or making the reader wait. And, and there is at least, I think, one moment of, of genuine suspense resolved in the book in that found section. And, you know, it felt to me... Um, both, I mean, look, it's it's fun and, and readers deserve fun along the way and, and deserve suspense and some momentum to keep them going. But it also felt appropriate in a book that is to a significant extent about the, the pleasure of finding things and the astonishment of finding things. It seemed very important that uh, readers would actually find things along the way. Yes. Why is etymology and the sort of the evolution of meaning so important to you? I suppose because I love words, you know, um, I, it's when you step back for a minute and think about it, it is an ongoingly remarkable thing about our species that we, we up and named everything. <laughs> you know, we, we figured out right. how to talk and then, right. you know, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we just went around and, and, and gave everything a, a specific bespoke name. Um, and sometimes you learn things uh, when, 
look, I, I actually, what I actually love is history, to tell you the truth. I studied history in college and it's generally my experience that when you go and try to um, understand how we got where we are and, and what happened in the past, you uncover just wonderful and fascinating things you didn't know about. And that's true of, of the history of people uh, in, in the biography or, or memoir sense. It's true of the history of nations. It's true of the history of ideas. And it's certainly true of the history of words. So every once in a while, um, you do, as you do with all subjects, you unearth some kind of wonderful discovery when, when you look into those histories. So I was very surprised, for instance, to learn that, you know, this word lost that I obviously thought about a lot, you know, when working on this book, um, I absolutely assumed that the primary meaning and the original meaning had been the one the one we mean when when we do lose, you know, our car keys, the, the sense of misplacement. Yes. And then, you know, over time, uh, we had kind of bent that word to our own purposes and in a kind of euphemistic way started to use it to talk about people. I lost my father. Yes. Turns out that's exactly backwards. Actually, the original meaning of loss was was a kind of a, a grief and a separation. Uh, and, and it's much more closely related to the sense of mourning than to the sense of misplacement. And, and that was fascinating to me. And Sorry, you referenced the term forlorn, I think. Mm, yeah, exactly. The the lost, that word lost is related to the lorn of forlorn. Yes. So this kind of, this sense of sorrow and separation and loneliness is baked into it from the very beginning. And I just thought, how fascinating, you know, who knew, right? I, I really did have it exactly back. It's interesting because one of the things that really stuck with me about your essay, the really big one, was the fact that indigenous stories going back millennia referenced this gigantic wave that came in and yet everyone ignored it and thought it was just a myth but not true when in fact there's a very good chance it was true mm. quote unquote yeah, I mean, there's better than a very good chance. We we now know that those stories were they were not folklore. They were uh, they were oral histories. Uh, and yes. I share your feeling. I mean, that was to me one of the most incredible things about reporting this article was learning that these um, these tales of this enormous inundation of water. You know, you, you see why you see why outsiders to those indigenous cultures interpreted them as folklore because, of course, they map very neatly onto the kinds of presumably folkloric stories about floods that we tell over and over in, in Western culture in all kinds of ways. Um, and so I think it got kind of, you know, set aside into this sort of quasi biblical notion of what a flood is, as opposed to a, a deep geological sense of what a yes. flood is. Uh, but, but in point of fact, um, those, those were references to uh, very real, very harrowing and devastating events that actually did occur on this kind of uh, recurring cycle with with the movement of that of that fault line. There's two poets that show up in the book uh, more than once, and that's Elizabeth Bishop and uh, Robert Frost. Could you talk just a bit about each? Yes, I mean those two show up uh, multiple times. Uh, many other poets show up. I I do actually like to think of this book as a little bit of a um, covert poetry anthology, uh, you know, why not sneak some of some of the most beautiful things ever written into into readers lives. Um, and, and frankly, you know, why not? Uh, why not just lean on them when, when they've said things far more beautifully than I ever could. Um, I am very fond of both of those poets. Um, Elizabeth Bishop, who I think is really quite a genius. Interestingly, uh, I don't know if it's happenstance or if I just read her early and imprinted on her or if we met, if we had been able to meet uh, in life in some strange temporal shift, if we would have just shared a set of interests because Elizabeth Bishop wrote about this category of, of losing and how strange it is. She has a beautiful poem called One Art that tries to wrestle with, as I do, the very strange fact that we include our, our car keys and our loved ones in this bizarre <laughs> capacious category um but interestingly she also wrote quite beautifully about what i'm writing about in the last third of this book the 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 section called and um because she was also very interested in this conundrum of of how things are related to one another or if they are related to one another and interested in the fact that sometimes you know like the word and which can join any two things, you know, laptops and kumquats, you know, whatever it may be, without apparent rhyme or reason. Um, 
life often joins things for us uh, without much rhyme or reason. You know, you fall in love and you lose your father. So I, I think we share um, a certain set of interests, although she writes about them more beautifully than I ever could. And, and that's why she keeps showing up in the book. If you can believe it, I think I like cut her from the book a couple of times. There might've been even more references if I hadn't at some point sat down and given myself a stern edit. Um, Robert Frost actually probably is the poet I most imprinted on as a very young child. Um, my father quite wonderfully read a lot of poetry to my sister and me when we were young. And I always loved it when he did that. It was It was thrilling and exciting and interesting, but you know, Frost is a fascinating poet because he is one of the deepest and most sophisticated of, of all poetic thinkers, um, and yet very pleasing to a child. You know, he he is yes. always operating on these on these two levels, and and one of the levels is the one a child could access, which is basically like what a pretty poem, you know, uh, yes. about a thing I can understand. Um, and and the other level is is deep and existential and also linguistically just captivating. Um, so he's a great poet to grow up with because you kind of grow into him. And, and yes, he, um, I think because he's been at my side and in my head for so very long, he quite naturally crops up in my writing. Um, but also he says beautiful things about the kinds of things I'm trying to write about. You know, he says beautiful things about love. He says beautiful things about um, families. He says beautiful things about America. So, so yes, I, he's, he's always there kind of providing a line when I need one. Well, you grew up with a, a, a lovely father too. You, you sort of lucked out on the, the father lottery. Yeah, I absolutely won the father lottery. I agree. I should say I also won the mother lottery. I mean, a, a slightly cool thing we often do is only um, eulogize people when when it's too late for them to yes. appreciate it. Um, yes. <laughs> my mother is, is also a remarkable and wonderful woman, and I feel so lucky in general to grow up with the parents I did. But yeah, my dad was just an authentically amazing guy. I mean, he um, it's really interesting. He did not have by any stretch of the imagination, an easy childhood. You know, my dad was born in Tel Aviv when it was still part of Palestine, um, lost almost his entire maternal line uh, in Auschwitz, you know, 12 out of 13 aunts and uncles, uh, his grandparents, everyone just, just perished in the war, except for his mother and, and one aunt. Um, you know, and then he was kind of kicked around the globe for a while by, by the twin forces of geopolitical violence and poverty uh, and eventually landed in, in America on refugee visas. And, you know, things did not immediately get better, partly because his, his home life uh, with his parents was uh, pretty volatile and pretty unstable. And yet, astonishingly, my father somehow emerged from all of this mm. as both one of the most ebullient people you could ever meet, just absolutely joyful and, and fascinated by the world and curious about other people and, and just expansively generous. Um, and also one of the most brilliant people you could ever meet, um, despite nothing in his childhood really um, paving the way for, for either of those outcomes. It's a natural, I think it's a natural instinct to want to pay tribute to those that you love or those who think are noble or those who you think deserve attention and recognition. Was that, I mean, of course, you were describing your experience of grieving, but this is also a way of paying tribute to people who you love. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's no question that, you know, part of this book is about grief and grieving. Um, but, but I do think of it as much more a book about love, mm -hmm. uh, love mm -hmm. of my partner, of course, but also very much love of my father. And yes, I think that's right. I think we have quite wonderfully, we have an instinct to praise. You know, we have an instinct to praise the beauty of the world. We have the instinct to praise those we love. Uh, you said this is so beautiful, like the instinct to praise what's noble, you know, or, or what's worthy of, of our honor. Um, and what a lovely impulse, you know, it's, it's an interesting, uh, interesting feature of, of our species. Uh, and this book is absolutely a kind of extended exercise in, in praising that which I love and find honorable. Um, and it's a joyful kind of thing to write, you know, it feels yes. meaningful. Uh, and 
I do. You said I won the um, father lottery. I absolutely feel that way. I also think I won the partner lottery. Uh, right, it's really right, fun right. to write a love story, you know. Uh, so, so yes, I, I, that that's exactly what I was up to here. I wonder how your partner feels about you talking about your love for her to everyone. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, so I'm not a very private person. Uh, my partner is more private than I am. And it's a funny thing, you know, when we met, uh, and for that matter, when we married, there was really, you know, nothing in my past life or my past professional life to suggest that I would ever decide to write a memoir. <laughs> it's not my usual shtick. Uh, yeah. So, you know, she might reasonably have been a little dismayed by the whole thing. Uh, and to her great credit, she has just been an absolute and steadfast champion of the book. That was true while I was writing it. And it's been true since it came out. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it is interesting. I don't think she would have chosen to put our love story on the page. Um, but I think, you know, I certainly think she shares my feeling that it's a beautiful story, you know, uh, and, uh, and I think is, you know, in a wonderful way, um, very proud of me, you know, which it's a, it's a beautiful part of a, of a good relationship or marriage. I think, you know, I kind of always want nothing more than to sit back and listen to my partner. I, I I'm incredibly proud of her. She fills me with, with joy. And I, I think she's brilliant and, um, it's a nice reciprocal part of our relationship. I think she's, she's proud of me and proud of this book. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun while I was writing the love story. I would you know, work away at some section of it all day. And, and then I would bring it up to her at night and mm -hmm. read it yeah. like a bedtime story. And uh, it was, it was very sweet. You know, I, I don't think it was anything she ever would have expected uh, or requested uh, or done herself. Uh, but despite all that, she's just been incredible. But... Why do you think you had the urge to propose to her rather than vice versa? She would tell you that she absolutely had the urge to propose to me too. Um, it's funny how these things happen in relationships. She did a lot of the first, she asked me out for one thing. <laughs> and, and I think a kind of a little sense creeps in of like, you know, uh, whose turn it is in, in some sense. Um, that said, I, I am sure, you know, it, it on some level was just a matter of kind of fate and timing. Do you think you're more in love with her back then than you are now or staying the same? Oh, no. I mean, if anything, I think I'm probably more in love <laughs> now than I was then, even though at the time I would have told you that wasn't possible. Um, I, I don't know that more is the right word, actually. I think that when you really fall in love, uh, which I really did, uh, and when you're lucky and you fall in love with with someone who not only reciprocates your love, but but deserves it in the sense of it, it actually is a, a grounded and sustainable and sustaining relationship. I don't think it ever becomes a matter of more or less, but I do think it deepens. It just inevitably acquires almost in a kind of geological sense. It, it acquires strata and, and, and depth and layers. And, and also you do things together. You know, you, you make a world together. Uh, in our case, you make a baby together too, which um I think that's why I had the impulse to say, if anything, I'm, I'm more in love with her uh, only because love itself has kind of expanded enormously in our family because we do have this beautiful little baby and she's an incredible mother. And uh, it's really fun to, to, to raise our kid with her. And that's where the word more came from. But, but I think deeper is more accurate. There's just new and new and different layers to it all the time. I love how you say that, you know, when you first fall in love or you become interested in attracted the, the the main drive is speaking of more more information you want to know everything you can about that person yeah it was fun to sit and, and really think about how love works I mean obviously I sat and thought about how grief works too and and that's kind of I think the task of the writer right is to like actually with some precision try to focus on the, the, the real details and essence of an experience, uh, which you have to sit down and try to kind of push past all of the familiar and all of the cliched and figure out, well, okay, but like, what's it actually like to grieve, you know, or what is it actually like to fall in love? Uh, and, and in the case of thinking about love, um, that was incredibly fun and, and really interesting. I mean, I surprised even myself, two things really stand out about that. And one is what you just said, which is, 
falling in love is defined by this desperate desire for more information, which when you think about even like, you know, seventh graders with crushes, like that's all they do, right? Like it's partly because it's all they can do. You know, they, they follow each other around and they figure out like, well, what's his class schedule or her class schedule? And, you know, when will she be at her locker? (laughs) You know, where does she live? Like you're you're just desperate to learn anything you possibly can and, you know, scale that up and shift it slightly to adulthood. And it's still exactly like that. You know, you're just you want to know everything, you know, where did you come from? And what's your family like? And, you know, what do you like for dinner? And, and, you know, just, just everything. You're just, you're just famished for more details about this person. And, you know, I will say the other thing that was, that was really striking to me when I thought about what it's like to fall in love. And this felt um, so apt in terms of this broader category of discovery. I realized that truly one of the most characteristic emotions of falling in love is astonishment. You know, this sense of like, I I can't believe this happened. You know, you listen to how people talk to their beloved or about their beloved and, and, and they literally will say things like, I can't believe you're real. You know, we're not, you know, unicorns or Pegasus. It's like, it shouldn't be that shocking. (laughs) And yet somehow when you fall in love with someone, it really is. Well, you, you also feel that you're so lucky in, many, in fact, you talk about the falling star as having been loosed, loosed from order. The way that you draw these broad analogies between meteorites and falling in love is really quite beautiful. I mean, it, you're, you're tying these deep personal uh, experiences in with, uh, in with the universe. Well, they feel tied into the universe for me already. You know, you're you're absolutely right. The sense of being just cosmically lucky. You know, I, I quote in the book this beautiful passage from James Baldwin, which is about imagining. You know, you're from New York and you're thinking about Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is absolutely meaningless to you until you meet someone from Hong Kong, and <laughs> and, and there is this sense of like, how have time and space conspired to deliver this person to me? You know, you you feel like we talked about winning the lottery. You feel like you won the lottery. You feel like it's 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 astonishing that such a fortunate thing could happen to you. And I, I just hope everyone gets to feel that at least at some point in their life. It's a beautiful feeling. But there's the, uh, also the thing, the fact that it's sort of based on chance, you suggest, gives you the sense that maybe you're not in control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should say that plenty of people don't think it's chance, right? My partner included. You know, I, I think those who believe in God or believe in a, a divinely ordained and ordered universe um, do a very different kind of meaning making around, around things like falling in love. And of course, obviously also around uh, losing people and grieving. It doesn't mean there's not astonishment or awe or gratitude, but, uh, but the terms are quite different. Um, but yes, for me, um, the fact, the fact of it feeling astonishingly lucky, of course, has a flip side, which is, I mean, first of all, it never have happened, you know, this feeling of, of amazement because of how, how likely it was that it would never come to be. And yet it did. But, but what that means is it's all a little precarious, right? You know, yeah. at, at any moment, the things that we love, these, these um, astonishing finds and the things we feel so fortunate about could just as quickly be taken away from us, which of course is reality. Those are, those are the terms of existence. Yeah, it brings up this idea of you can only do what's within your own control. You can do that. Like you can go out and you've got a lovely way of describing online dating. Half putting on a pair of pants or something, but they don't fit. Something along those lines. But you can do a certain number of things that are within your control. And then you just have to, then you just have to wait or hope. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the ways when I when I look at this category of finding, part of what's interesting about it is sometimes we find them by searching for them. uh, And sometimes we find them just through pure blind luck. And obviously, you know, if you're searching for something, it's one thing to search for your cell phone you know, you know what it looks like. You have a relatively good idea of the last time you saw it. Uh, it's, it's not that hard, even if it's sometimes incredibly maddening to try to find it again. 
But if what you're searching for is love, you are facing a really different kind of problem, right? Because actually you have not seen your love before. You don't know what it looks yes. like. You don't well, know where fact, or if you last saw it. <laughs> and in fact, so, you say that the, the way it showed up for you, you would never have dreamt that that's what it would look like. It is true. I mean, I, I say this in the book, but yes, if you had given me a pen and paper and 10,000 years and asked me to describe my future partner, I, I would never have come up with her, right? How could you? People are so distinctive and so different and whatever it is we might think we're looking for in, in, a, in a loved one, in a life partner, we have no idea until that person actually materializes. Yes. The other things you talk about is the fact that when you do fall in love like that, you become very alert. Mm. It's true. I find that um, it's another interesting way that, that love and grief are kind of mirror images of each other. I, I find grief to be a, a kind of dimmer switch on the world. You know, everything goes a little dull and a little dark and a little foggy. And by contrast, you know, falling in love did feel to me like this experience of kind of the technicolor world, you know, everything was suddenly in, in tremendous focus. Uh, and it was as if I had not only fallen in love with my partner, but kind of newly fallen in love with the world. And I suppose because I could see it through her eyes as well as my own, it really did seem like there was twice as much to see and twice as much to marvel at. And as it happens, I, I fell in love with someone who was preternaturally observant, uh, both about the physical world, like truly does just spot things I, I miss entirely, and also emotionally and intellectually very astute, and so, so notices things in that way too. And so it did yes. feel to me like the world was just replete with, with detail and, and, and things to look at and talk about in such an exciting way. When you are in that state, it's like everything is easy and smooth and lovely, right? It just life tends to move along in such a lovely, effortless way. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I mean, that that's certainly true. You know, there's, it's wonderful. Obviously, we talk about life's rough spots, but occasionally there are just these glorious, smooth spots where, where you sail along. And uh, it is an interesting feature of love that tends to make everything seem pretty good, <laughs> you know, at least yes. for a while. Obviously not, not, not forever. And actually much of this book is about how life is forever intruding. It intrudes on your love. It intrudes on your grief. You know, no, no state of being is kind of static or final. Um, but it's certainly the case that, that when you're just overjoyed and falling in love, you know, everything is great. Doing the dishes is great. Going to work is great. Yes. I'm going to wind down here just by, first of all, saying that I tick off typically the way I operate is. I'll read a book as closely as I can, and I'll tick off phrases or passages that I either love or that I don't understand, and then bring those up with, with the person I'm interviewing. And page 123 has five ticks on it. So that, that's, that's the winner. Well, I hope it was things you loved, not things you didn't understand. Well, I just want to quickly go through them. So what I understood then was that no amount of happiness was out of proportion to the fact of having found her. That's just so lovely. Hmm. That nothing in the world could feel more natural, that nothing in the world could feel more astonishing. We, we mentioned that. The characteristic emotion of falling in love is amazement. Loss shocks us with how abruptly something we cherish can disappear. But falling in love is the shining flip side of that encounter, an instance of the deep joy we, we can feel when life surprises us. And then finally, my understanding of the universe rearranged itself when I met C. Did you just call her C because you wanted not to, uh, is that how the moniker she goes by or you just wanted to put C in there instead of her name? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I originally, um, the very first passage I ever wrote about her, which is the scene where we meet, 
I actually didn't use any kind of name at all. I, I just used pronouns, which somehow felt exactly right. It's some, it's quite true to the experience of falling in love. Like in that moment, there's only this person. Like, why would you need to indicate beyond that? It's the whole world. Uh, and, and that was, it was so satisfying to me. And then very quickly, I realized, well, you actually can't write a whole book that way. It's frankly, it's, it's grammatically impossible. It becomes too confusing. You know, is she the, is she the woman you're falling in love with? Is she the cat? You know, is she your mother-in-law? <laughs> you, you, you have to start clarifying. Um, and the the choice of C it was not meant to be coy and it was not meant to be like a you know a roman clay go figure out who this is my partner is is Casey Sepp uh, the author of a, a really astonishing book uh, Furious Hours Murder Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee she's a fellow staff writer at the New Yorker she wasn't when we met uh, but she is now and um, none of this is remotely secret we're we're both fairly public figures and public writers and publicly mm-hmm. linked so I wasn't trying to hide anything. Um, but I was I was mindful of what I told you earlier, which is she is a more private person than I am. And also mindful of the fact that, you know, it's funny, you write a memoir and, and people who read it have a way of feeling that they they know you and they know everyone in it. And, and that's wonderful and touching. And it means you're doing your job right. And I'm, I'm always very moved when people say to me, for instance, um, well, I never got to meet your father, but now I feel like I knew him. That that's that's truly wonderful. But it's also, of course, truly not true. You know? And uh, and and I did feel, you know, in the case of my partner, somehow just using the first letter of her name, uh, which is also something I do in, in, you know, my own private journals or diaries. So it felt natural to me anyway. It, it felt sort of like, well, yes, you you, you get this bit, you know, you, you get the, the, the beginnings, but I get all the rest of it and, and she gets all the rest of it. Okay, that's nice. Yes. We, you know, we spoke about the fact that uh, you're always longing for more when you first fall in love. And, and this is on the next page on 124. So we were talking about that. And then, bang, second paragraph on the page you write. And that, I suppose, is why my second date with C lasted 19 days. Boom. <laughs> It's like you, we're going along, we're going along talking about this, and then suddenly you come in with, <laughs> with that sort of exclamation point. I, I thought mm. it was fun. Oh, well, thank you. Well, that, you know, it, it brings us back to, to almost where we started this conversation, which is this kind of linking up of, of essay and memoir. And I did feel that was one of those moments where you're writing about an abstract thing, you know, what, what is love like in general, what is falling in love like in general. And then I, there's this kind of natural moment to bring you back into, into my own story. Is it just the fact that you're putting personal experience into an essay form or is it essay form into a memoir? Like how, how did you approach this whole well, I don't think you can ever just put one into the other or, or, or just sort of stack them. I, I think it has to be its own very deliberately designed entity. Meaning I, I think anything you write needs a bespoke structure, you know, and a bespoke voice and, and all of it. it. It kind of has to be done in accordance with with what the project itself demands, you know, and this project I knew was going to be an exploration of the category of loss anchored in the story of my father's death uh, and an exploration of the category of discovery anchored in the story of falling in love. And then this exploration of, of, of conjunction, right, of what it's like to do both of those things more or less at once, also anchored in, in my own life and somewhat specifically anchored in that case in, in uh, my mar- like my, my wedding. And so I knew, I knew I just had to have a voice and a pace that would let me move back and forth between the two of them, these two modes, uh, the, the very personal anchors and, and these broader explorations in a way that wouldn't be jarring or wouldn't feel like whiplash or wouldn't feel like these kind of disconnected modes. Um, so I, uh, I I suppose as with uh, almost everything I write, I wound up feeling like I just kind of had to build the tools to build the house. Well, the other thing too is a memoir and essay. These are these are categories that publishers want to stamp on a book so they can sell it more easily in the minds of the readers. That's true. You know, I'm. Uh, I know that memoir is a very very popular genre right now, uh, and it's useful for publishers, but it's also useful for readers. You know, they they want to be guided towards something they're going to love reasonably enough. Uh, although I hope sometimes they're uh, they are like the you know 
the, the asteroid that gets nudged out of place and becomes a meteorite. You know, they wind up somewhere else, but they're very happy about it. Uh, and I like to think this book, if you picked it up because you were in it for the memoir, you would be very, very rewarded uh, in terms of the story, but also um, pleasantly surprised by, by some of what else you get along the way. Yeah, just an example of that. You, you start with the meteorite hitting Chesapeake Bay. You mm -hmm. get into that natural history and you trace that it's almost like a big zoom in the camera going from the big meteorite hitting the planet and then zooming without breaking track straight down to where you got married and itself it's i just thought that was such a, a lovely way to combine these two things really Thank you. Uh, yes, it was very fun to write. You know, it was a, um, essentially kind of time lapse on the page. And yes, it felt true to what the book is trying to do, which is to square our lives, the scale of our own lives. And, and these these things like our, our griefs and our loves that feel so enormous and momentous while they're happening. I, it, I wanted to square that with the scale of the cosmos. So it, it made sense yes. to, to do that. Okay. Two more questions. The very last sentence of the book, we are here to keep watch, not to keep. Can you expand on that just a tiny bit? Uh, I can. You know, I, I hope that by the time readers get to it in the book, that they'll feel that I already have, and that it it, it kind of lands where it um, where it absolutely had to. Um, I think a lot of this wrestling with loss and and with the inevitability of loss in the case of love, where we find something that we very much don't want to let go of is, you know, a very natural yearning to cling to the things that are precious to us, uh, which, of course, we want that. Um, but also, of, of course, we don't get to do that at some point. We will be we will be severed from all that we love. And it's very hard to know how to make peace with that. And I, I think that where I ultimately land is this feeling that our our job here is as caretakers. You know, we, we are here to watch over things. Uh, and and to tend to what we love and protect it and cherish it and defend it, and that is that is an act of keeping watch, you know. And and it is it makes sense of our time here, and it makes meaningfulness uh, of, of our time, and it is simply a torch we have to pass on when when we can do it no longer, uh, and and that to me, it's so easy to want to keep and to want to hold forever and ever. Um, but it's, it's not our lot, you know, but it is very much our lot to, to be here while we are here and to be attentive and to pay attention. And, and as I said, to watch over. And that feels to me like a very beautiful responsibility, you know, and, and, and one I'm happy to embrace and one that I hope uh, leaves readers feeling like, ah, yes, this is, this is the point. This is what we're doing here. So, so important, this fundamental points that you're making here. Um, I started off by saying that, or quoting W.H. Hudson, the sense of the beautiful is God's best gift to the human soul. And I'd just like to say that, that you also have the gift of being able to communicate beautifully what you've sensed. So thank you for that. And thank you for this interview. Well, thank you so much for the kind words about the writing and the book. Uh, and, and thank you for the lovely conversation. It's absolutely been a pleasure. Very good. Bye for now. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too.